welcome to the world of critical care. Today, we're going to be discussing Argatraban and Bivalirudin. Now, these are two IV anticoagulants that honestly, most people do not encounter regularly in critical care. I remember I never experienced either one of these IV anticoagulants really until two, almost three years into critical care. And they have very specific use cases, but I think it's helpful to understand what these anticoagulants are, because when you do see them, it can kind of take you by surprise. And you're thinking, well, what on earth is this? You know, are my lab values going to be any different? Am I going to be able to get to my normal therapeutic levels similarly to heparin, or maybe it's easier? And so today we're going to just talk briefly about these two unique medications, what we use them for and why. Now to take a step back, Heparin currently is really sort of our primary IV anticoagulant that's used. Remember, heparin is going to interact and bind with antithrombin 3. So when we have that activated antithrombin 3, what that's able to do is actually, if it's the unfractioned heparin, which is the much larger heparin molecule, it's able to directly bind thrombin. Now, with the low molecular weight heparins, like our Lovenox, they're a little bit smaller, and so they're going to actually affect factor 10A, which is kind of indirectly then we affect thrombin. And so that's something to think about, I think, when we, when we think about heparin. Now, there may be situations, though, where we don't want to use heparin as an anticoagulant. A common one is because we have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And so one of our issues with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is that, A, we typically are anticoagulating a patient that we need to anticoagulate. And so, of course, we want to discontinue the heparin, which is causing the reaction that we don't want. But we still need to find a new anticoagulant. Another issue is that with our heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, remember we have that IgG-mediated antibody response where we can actually have significant thrombosis. And so we can have issues with thromboembolism, which again, we want to anticoagulate a patient. And so often we move into using a medication like Argatraban in these situations. Now, Argatraban is a direct thrombin inhibitor. And so there's sometimes you'll see them labeled DTIs. So a direct thrombin inhibitor inhibits the enzyme thrombin. Now remember, thrombin is a protease, and this causes that proteolytic cleavage that we've talked about in the clotting cascade episode. So as a brief refresher, remember, we have prothrombin. Prothrombin is factor two. Prothrombin, we want to convert to thrombin activated, so factor 2A, so activated 2. The way we do that is by that interaction of factor 10A and 5A, which formed that complex, which allows for that conversion of thrombin into the activated thrombin 2A. Now, why do we want activated thrombin 2A? Well, that is that critical protease that allows for us to transition fibrinogen into fibrin. And that is the key part of our clotting cascade is the fibrin. And of course, we get that fibrin, that cross-linked fibrin mesh. So thrombin, if we can directly inhibit thrombin, we're able to, in a very targeted way, inhibit fibrinogen being converted into fibrin. And so 
direct thrombin inhibitors have an advantage in that they're very specifically targeted. It's not something where we're very upstream in the clotting cascade and we're hoping to see that trickle-down inhibition. What we're seeing is a direct thrombin inhibition. Now, argatroban has some advantages in that, one, it is not renally excreted. It's primarily metabolized hepatically, and so because of that, when you have people with renal insufficiency, this tends to be a good medication. Another advantage of this is a pretty short half-life. Other reasons that we might see this, of course, we mentioned it, but if we've had heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, this tends to be one of our go-to IV anticoagulants. We monitor our gatroban with an APTT, so remember... We would not see any 10A monitoring because it doesn't interact with 10A at all. Remember, heparin, if we're doing unfractioned heparin, so the, the much larger molecule, we're going to see significant effect on thrombin, but we also see effects on 10A. And so we're able to monitor with either an APTT or a 10A. Remember, low molecular weight heparins, we mostly are going to do only a 10A. And then with this situation, because it's really only active on thrombin, we're only going to measure with an APTT. This medication also could be used in something like a coronary angioplasty situation. So let's say we've had a patient who's had heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in the past. We have some concern for it. This would be another medication that's approved for that. And so that's one of the other first situations I've actually ever seen it was years ago as when I was an ICU float. I was in our cardiac ICU. And seeing a patient using this medication, it was just very surprising to me because I was like, I didn't really understand. So just understand, you can see this in a variety of different situations. Now, most of my experience with this has been on long-term anticoagulated patients. Specifically, like in our unit, we have a lot of uh, ECMO patients, which tend to be on ECMO for extended periods of time. And so you, your susceptibility for some of these patients to have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia tends to increase a bit. And so because of that, many times we ended up transitioning into using our gatroban. My personal experience, granted, it's probably been a dozen times or so that I've used this medication, has been generally positive. I typically do not have too many issues getting therapeutic ranges on it. I feel like in general, the clinical situation that I have experienced matches our lab values. That's one of the challenges I've seen in particular with heparin drips is that sometimes you, according to your labs, we're therapeutic with heparin, but clinically we tend to have a, maybe potentially it looks like we're more anticoagulated than we really are. That's something that I personally have experienced, especially with our long-term anticoagulated patients on cardiac support devices, it tends to be a challenge. And so that's something that I have seen on the few situations I've been using Argatroban on patients. At least from a nursing standpoint, I've had a very positive experience using Argatroban. Now, our second medication we're going to talk about today is Bivalarudin. So Bivalarudin, again, is a direct thrombin inhibitor. I think it's worth mentioning that there's really, in general, three different ways that there are three different categories of direct thrombin inhibitors. It we have bivalent and univalent, and so that really just has to do with the binding sites. And so our gatroban is a univalent direct thrombin inhibitor. 
Uh, a bivalent one was something like bivalarudin, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. Um, and the, the final one is an allosteric inhibitor. Um, right now, we don't see any in regular use, but that's something that they're moving into. That's sort of a whole nother episode. You kind of start really moving into the biochem world when we talk about this. But just so if you ever see it in a pharmacy textbook and you're looking at it, you're saying, okay, they've, they've categorized these a little bit differently. That's specifically what they're talking about. One of the unique aspects of bivalarudin really is actually its origins. There's another medication called um, leporudin. I, I may have pronounced that wrong, but hey, we're just going to go with it. Uh, it actually comes from the saliva of leeches, which is really interesting. But bivalarudin has very similar protocols and, and procedures that we would use with our gatroban. So again, we typically are going to measure APTTs. The excretion of it's a little bit different. It's about 20% renally excreted. So again, we want to think a little bit about what is our renal situation with the patient that it's being administered to. Another reason that bivalarudin might be used is it does have the capability to inhibit platelet activation. And so because of that, it is used for PCI. So we're doing an angioplasty, replacing a stent. One of the advantages of it is that, yes, we have an anticoagulant effect, but we also have some antiplatelet effect. And so because of that, that's something where you might see bivalarudin specifically used. Again, I've used bivalarudin probably, I want to say, maybe a dozen times approximately. It's a medication, again, that I've never really had any negative experiences with. I found, again, bivalarudin and argatroban both in the situations we use them in were fairly simple to get into therapeutic ranges. And again, I felt like the labs matched the clinical presentation of both of these anticoagulants. One or two special considerations I think are worth mentioning. With argatroban, we can have falsely elevated INRs. Not falsely elevated INRs, but if we're transitioning to Coumadin and, we're, and we trend Coumadin with INR, we can have pretty significantly elevated INRs when we're in that transition process. Now, most pharmacists are very aware of this. And so the transition process just may be a little bit different. So if you do happen to have a patient on a gatriban and you're transitioning to Coumadin and your INRs is just through the roof and you're going, what on earth is happening? Just remember, there are some specific situations there where that we may have to be working through that may not necessarily match a, a clinical picture that would suggest an INR really being that high. Another thing to remember, too, is that the effect of thrombin on platelet activation. So just remember that because I think you, we spent a lot of time lately talking about how the clotting cascade is largely different from our platelet adhesion activation. But at the same time, we do have some interrelated effects between them. And thrombin is one of those because thrombin promotes platelet activation. And so it actually also promotes aggregation because it activates those, those protease activated receptors on the outside of the platelet. And so, and that's what I just mentioned before too, when we were looking at like bivalarudin, like it has some very significant antiplatelet effects that are unique to it. But anytime that we're inhibiting thrombin, 
specifically we're inhibiting that thrombin 2a that activated form we are going to be in some way decreasing our platelet activation now is that a direct effect no there's other ways we can directly inhibit platelets much more effectively which we're going to be talking about on the next episode but i think it's worth mentioning that specifically now it's a sort of a short episode today but i think it's important to bring these up only because I know when I first experienced these two drugs, I was, had no idea what they were. I was like, what on earth are these drugs? And I think it's just helpful to understand generally what they are, why we use them. I do think they're really effective. I think it'll be interesting reading some of the pharmacy research out there today and talking with pharmacists. It sounds like this is really a new frontier and there's a high probability that we're going to start seeing a move potentially away from heparin over the next few years, possibly moving more into these specific types of direct thrombin inhibitors for anticoagulation. So it'll be interesting to see how anticoagulation changes in critical care. So the next couple episodes, what I'd like to talk about, one are our primary oral anticoagulants, and then also talk about our antiplatelet therapy. I think these are the two categories that we see very, very often. So The goal will be in the next week to release two episodes. The first will be our oral anticoagulants. So we're going to talk about medications. We're going to talk about things like Eliquis. We're going to talk about Coumadin. We're going to talk about a few others. Like there are multiple oral direct thrombin inhibitors. We'll talk about those. Talk about some of the challenges in getting the therapeutic ranges, how we do our monitoring. And then the next episode, we're going to talk about platelet inhibition. So we're going to talk about antiplatelet therapy, which I think is really important because No matter where you are in critical care, a significant portion of the population will be on antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation or a combination of the two. So I think it's really important to understand those, understand what our concerns are, but also understand why we're using those specific types of medications. Well, with that, thanks for listening, and I look forward to getting out these next two episodes.